So how's it going? I'm good, David Ma. How are you? <laughs> I'm not. I'm doing. I'm doing okay. Um, episode 201. Here we are missing our host and captain of the ship, Damone Carter. But uh, you know, it's good to be here. And a happy new year to everyone. Yeah, happy new year to the DBRP community. Um, we took a little time off. We soul searched. We avoided the news we have somehow miraculously avoided the omicron so far um it's it was you know not the best news lately uh right, but we are right. we are getting back in the saddle here we're here to talk about hip-hop and to talk to each other and just like on the start of another year um let's kind of dive into it dave is there anything in particular you're looking forward to for 2022 or something you have your eye on that you think might might be impactful yeah you know it's it's really hard not to i think that i think um uh, there's an embarrassment of riches i mean last year um was such a strong year that i feel like this year there's gonna be lots of spillover as well as you know hopefully we'll hear from some artists who are a little bit quiet last year because now, now we know some stuff's brewing so um, I, I expect this year for everyone to come out swinging. Um, to answer your question, though, um, off top, I think everybody's waiting on fucking Kendrick's album, right? I mean, th- yeah. that's sort of an easy one. Yeah. But um, sort of in our realm, and, and they, they teased this a little bit, I believe, a couple of weeks ago at, at the end of last year, um, the new Earl and Alchemist, dude. I think Earl and Alchemist mostly produced it. Yeah. Was that it? Yeah, it seems so. like it. I mean, I'm just reading the tea leaves and the IG posts like you are. But yeah, I think right. they've been they've been teasing pretty hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, that uh, Tabula Rasa track is so great. Uh, so good. Arm and Hammer on it yes. and Earl like having this kind of newfound clarity. Um, so that is definitely something I'm looking forward to as well. I, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's it's like who will capitalize on the momentum that they created or who was like okay we just did our thing now we lay low for a while and i'm thinking in particular of like a a crew like bruiser brigade where you have so Mm -hmm. many different guys and it was kind of like a coming out party certainly for bruiser wolf um will we get a danny brown record with raffy beats or kind of in the style of or with all these guys on it um they we got a lot from them last year so it's kind of uh, for me i'm curious of like do you go harder or do you do you pull back after you've right material? Right. I you know, I uh, after being flooded with so much Griselda and, you know, obviously we're all fans, but I, I would I wouldn't mind if they pulled back a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's get, an interesting get, comparison. You know, just, just give me a give me a give me three weeks to absorb something before, you know, Conway drops his eighth album of the week, you know, <laughs> um, but besides that, I mean, um, you know, speaking of next year, I, I heard rumblings of um Benny the Butcher, uh, Tana Talk Four, and yeah. if and if that you know if that stays in line with the the previous Tana Talks, and we're we're gonna be given some great great material. Absolutely, um, it's interesting because 
basically all we have to go on our artists twitters or igs like there's no big machine behind any of this so it's mm-hmm. interesting like when i think when most people are like doing like in anticipated albums i don't know if you've followed this but uh the blog stereo gum has had a new sky ferrera record on their most anticipated albums list for like seven years <laughs> like acknowledged it on in like you know probably in a tweet i would have to imagine how else would she's i don't think she's like sending right. emails like oh it's coming you know she's <laughs> like it's actually gonna come so it's kind of funny to like be monitoring these uh, you know they're great artists but they don't have big machines behind them is the point right. that I'm making it's not like when Michael Jackson had an album coming out everyone knew about it like totally. you never know when like Elucid is gonna drop you know what I mean right, it's just like right. you just you get it when you get it um, but yeah uh, and I like that yeah no this part I of like the fun that. of it yeah absolutely. Right, right right now it's I'm, on with a couple of the artists you have to be really quick to get the record like right. if you want wax, you have to like pay attention, monitor mm-hmm. the situation, have your PayPal linked to your, you know, your account so you don't have to click through an extra three things. But um, I I thought it was a really strong year last year. We kind of always think that because we're always seeking out things that we enjoy and That's kind true. of ignoring the things that we don't. Um, I know a lot of people felt like it wasn't quite as good as the last couple of years. But- yeah, I heard rumblings of that as well. And I'm like, but. You know, uh, you know, did did you hear Andre's verse on on the Kanye album, piece right. of shit album, best verse of the year? You know, like yeah. there's, there's, so, there's there's so much to celebrate. You know, absolutely. Uh, what about you and your kind of writing career and your class that you teach? Like, are uh, you are you like uh, energized for next year? Or are you still like recovering from the holidays mode? I I uh, I t- I took a little bit of a self imposed sabbatical for about three weeks. Um, I don't start teaching again until late January, so I have a few weeks to chill. But um, the last project I just finished was um, the liner notes for the reissue of Lab Cabin California. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, so that comes out, I believe, in January. Nice. Um, Did you I'll talk to them. anybody for that, or was it like your thoughts on it? Uh, just my thoughts. Um, just liner notes in the um, in the same vein as the liner notes for E40's The Hall of Game. Um, nice. Just 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 historical stuff. I, I pull from my own archives and from my own interviews with certain people who make sense. And um, you know, they're they're not super long. They're they're about thirty five hundred words, and you try to encapsulate the history and sort of why those albums are important. And with Lab Cabin, there's so much to celebrate, and it's such a wonderful album. And also, it's like early Dilla you know, almost proto Dilla kind of. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's coming out soon. I know exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I got that coming out soon. Um, also working on a couple things for wax poetics and, um, a really, really big thing for, uh, the Paris review that I can't really talk about because I don't want to jinx it, but hopefully that will go through. And, um, I did, uh, one of two interviews already for that. So that's wow. halfway in the bag. Incredible. Thanks, man. Thank you for asking. What about you? You working on anything you're excited about? Or just uh, yeah, I, I definitely like put everything on pause for the holidays. Actually, I, t- I took two weeks off from the day job and I spent the first week like finishing up the two short thing and then kind of mm. getting all our Patreon content for the next couple of weeks um, settled. I made the next fly sporadic episode. So then Sick. I took the second week to like really actually detach. Like I did not look at my phone. I didn't even bring my computer, um, out to the desert where we were staying. And I just hung out with my friends and like, didn't, didn't think about music or the Airbnb where we were staying had this amazing, um, vintage VHS, um, collection. Wow. And it had an okay record collection. Usually the, the, 
record situation at these Airbnbs that advertise they when and we have we have vinyls uh, is like <laughs> right, usually not right. up to snuff for me, but they had a 1200 and they had some okay. decent records and I had actually okay. brought some records for the friends that I was visiting. So we were able to listen to some records and yeah, we watched a lot of like silly movies on VHS and like, just like chilled out pretty hard. So um, in terms that's of writing, awesome. I have a few things I want to pitch. I want to be busier this year. Um, that's something I'm, I'm like, you know, putting out the intention that I want, I want to write more and write for more places. So I have a couple of things that I'm going to pitch in the, you know, before the end of the week and just see if I can connect with some new editors and some, uh, some stuff I've been thinking about for a while, I like to kind of round the corner on things. And if it's not going to happen, let the artist know. And if it's going to happen, then get it happening. Right, um, but right. I'm also, I'm writing my uh, capsule reviews for that website, right. The Shuffle. And I have a bunch more of those to do. I thought I would be able to work on it during this off time. And I, I really wasn't. So mm. I just wasn't in the headspace to do that. But I'm going to get back to that. I think I have quite a few left to write to 70 something left to write so um, hey, well, just, you, well you mentioned um fly sporadic and i've been deeply enjoying those episodes so far man. Thanks, man um what what other ideas have been ruminating and like what other sort of um episodes can patreon subscribers expect yeah so thanks uh dave uh, for saying that there are like you know if it was made for one person it's basically made for you <laughs> uh, so the first one was on psychedelic rap and these are all available on our patreon or will be soon and the second one was just a really weird mood i got in where um, i called it chemcorder and it's just like this weird staticky distorted like it basically it's a it was a kind of tone poem if you will excuse the pretentious term on distortion and just weird kind of chemical reactions and so a bunch of different genres on there and then the third one i did this more like kind of like brisk and quick but somewhat extensive overview on the retro soul scene mm. especially around daptones and sharon jones and i got to tell a bunch of stories about our interactions with that and interviewing lee fields and the night yeah. sharon jones died and all that stuff um so i'm i'm thinking i i want to get back to doing rap ones again i have a few rap ideas um that i want to do um but i also have been wanting to do one on nina simone and like really go deep on Nina Simone. I, you and I have talked about this before, but we've never actually been able to figure out the right kind of venue for it. I have a Nina Simone press kit that includes an interview with her. And I kind of want to do like some of her songs and then weave in some of the yes. interview moments and do like a good, like hour, hour and a half, like kind of career overview on Nina. I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned wow. this on the show before, but of, of my record collection, the artist that I have the single most, amount of records is is nina simone i have like over 30 nina simone records and there's many that i don't have so i'd like wow. to kind of do a do a real deep dive on her and her politics and the documentary yeah. and just like kind of kind of go deep on that um but in terms of hip-hop i think um i want to do more like celebrating the backpack sound the underground sound like i've been listening to that um reissue that uncommon nasa did of that maasai bay record mm -hmm, you know that mm -hmm. record i do i do we i, talked I found about like it. two songs on there i was like damn this is really good and if i had heard this at the time i would be like obsessed with it and right. you can't you can't retroactively be obsessed with something now i have to intellectualize everything i'll never be able right. to feel it like i did right, right when that initially came out so i i'm thinking of building an episode around these two maasai bay songs and like really exploring kind of like um, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show. What has held up from that time? 
Right, right, right. And and even that definition changes too. You know what I mean? It's like All I checked out on Ace, I checked out on Aesop Rock for 15 years and, and like the last two years he dropped mind-blowing verses, like you know, 30 mind-blowing verses, you know. So um I, like you said, it's hard to retroactively go back, but you can still make sense of it and say, um yeah. this would have blown my fucking brains out if I was 19, you know. Totally. Yeah, but other than that, it's just, you know, kind of tending the collection. Something's got to go. Something's got to come in. It's just it's always basically the the doing the radio show or the fake radio show. Oh, and one last thing, like um, Apollo Cutso and I are going to get together and uh, do kind of like a reunion of our initial fake radio show that we had at college called WTTM so Radio. So we've been talking a lot about that. We had a date on the calendar. We were going to meet up, but it, it hasn't been able to come together yet. But we're going to definitely um, do something fun and funny and really lighthearted. Like we used to just get together in my parents' house when I still lived there, drink beers, smoke and just play records and joke around on the mic. And that was really, really fun. So we're going to yeah, do something in the vein of that yeah yeah i remember like by the time i met you guys like i saw those tapes and i think you went by word instrumental which yeah. i always thought was dope and yeah and then that sort of uh, bled into wttm the blog which we were kind yep. of doing together for yep. a minute that was you our know? first so, blog until uh we got we got jacked because we didn't uh <laughs> we didn't renew the uh what is it the url and some guy right, wanted like right. ten thousand dollars from korea and we were just like i don't understand what's happening <laughs> and then we all kind of went our separate blog ways and that's when you founded notorious you're still running long-standing uh repository <laughs> for your writings and a couple of mine and a couple of other people's so. yeah just happy it exists it's a little cubby hole in in the uh, online universe and uh you know we're here for it and um yeah i mean we, like i said we had such a such a good last year i mean i i know there's a little bit of contention i think some people didn't feel like last year was a strong year but i certainly did lots of lots of albums and lots of lots of um verses that moved moved me big time so totally um very much looking forward to seeing what's going down this year you know um like i like i mentioned earlier there are a lot of artists who are a little quiet um you know for example small pro you know, right. I know I he you know, you know, that motherfucker's working. Shout out to shout out to small pro friend of the program, friend in real life. And uh, he has some big stuff in the works, too. And so, you know, like everything he does is solid as fuck. So the artists, the small pros of the world, like we're, we're ready. We're ready for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, like you guys feel free to send us your music like we can't listen to everything we get. But if you feel strongly about something and like, you know, uh, say hi first <laughs> don't don't, don't right. just send blind links a lot of those end up in the spam it's like if you want if you really feel strongly about something and you really feel like we would like something feel free to send it over um i try to i try to give everything you know a, a cursory listen um we have our our email is easily findable and there's a um there's a submission form on our website deadbodrapod.com like we do like hearing things first we do. We do. And, you know, uh, whether you're just like an underground rapper or some like trap rapper or even Takashi, Nate. Uh, Weird you, know, you would bring that listen. up, Dave. <laughs> I think uh, he's definitely the type of artist who would think to send us his, his new music. I think uh, most people in the world don't know him for his music, but know him for the phenomenon of his incredible rise and even more incredible fall. And this right. week 
we have an interview with author, journalist, podcasting legend, Sean Sotero, um, who is someone we've talked to multiple times on the show. I hope we can talk to him more. Um, Sean is uh, just an awesome person and someone um, who, you know, I feel lucky to know. Um, but he's here to promote his book, Dummy Boy. I know, Dave, you got the physical copy. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Dummy Boy a little bit. I thought it was great. You know, if, if anybody listened to that, that uh, Spotify podcast series that he did, which is so in-depth and, and so amazing, I, thought, I think that was through Complex, right, Nate? Yeah, um, Complex yeah. has done um, two in this, or three in this series, I believe it was the Takashi story, then they did one on Pop Smoke, and now oh, I'm nice. actually still listening to the one on YNW Melly, whose music of those three guys might be the one I'm least familiar with, and I'm not super familiar with the other two either, but it is a really compelling story. I didn't, I, we don't, maybe we'll talk to Sean about that on another show. I don't want to get all into my thoughts about that at the moment, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting um, having the opportunity to read these books and we've got a big um, kind of author interview coming out in February as well that I think you guys are going to be excited about one of the major music books of the year we've had a chance to sit with for a couple of months but um, to keep it on Sean and Dummy Boy it's just we're lucky to have someone with such stringent journalistic principles documenting mm -hmm. this um, I'm going to use the term like uh I don't know quite what to call it. It's like um, you could easily get caught up in the. I, I, do you know what I'm but, trying to say? Like, yeah, yeah. Like all the, the the clickbait, like the the headline sort of stuff. You could easily yes. like, get caught in that. But Sean is such like a determined journalist, and it shines through in uh, in all of his work. Like he he he's not there for the fucking tattoos and like the the glitz and like like the hearsay or, or any of that. Yes, thank you for kind of helping me draw that out. It's um, it's just it's just really well done. It's uh, it, it's like a really good book about a really bad person, basically. Right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and the, the story is fascinating. I don't think if you're if I think if you are a fan of hip hop, you'll find something to get out of it. And if you're just a fan of like there, there's something very, I hate to use this term, but I think you'll know what I mean instantly. Trumpian about yes. Danny Hernandez and his story in America. It's kind of like um there are people who are skilled at manipulating the media and in this case mostly social media though later the the kind of um you know more more standard older school of media and getting attention and that in in, in and of itself is a kind of talent and so mm -hmm. whether, whatever you think about his rapping or his um performance style or his place within the kind of skills-based hip-hop ecosystem we cover on this show you have to admit he really caught the world's attention for a brief moment and i think they're the the deconstruction of that and what was happening behind the scenes is probably the most interesting part of the book yes 100 and so uh without further ado let's let's kick it to our interview with sean sotero
Dad Bod Rap Pod. Every week we have conversations with people who are moving and shaping and documenting hip hop culture. This week, joining us in Zoom, we have author Sean Sotero, whose new book, Dummy Boy, Takashi 6ix9ine and the Nine Trey Gangsta Bloods is coming out soon. And he's here to talk to us about that and some other interesting projects he has coming up. Sean, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks, guys. This is uh, this is number three, I think, on here, which is amazing. So it's always, uh, always great to be on. So thanks for yeah. having me. Thanks for continuing to talk to us now that you have a, a, a actual book out. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of this interesting trajectory of you coming on the program. I think the first time we had you on was to talk about your greatest, uh, your contributions to Complex's greatest producers um, was, yeah. series. Yeah. And then it seems like, like the next weekend, Takashi became a thing and your life just went in this whole other direction do you start to think of things as like pre-takashi and post-takashi now is this are those like is that a marker of time in your life at this point it's you know it's really strange that the whole thing started so gradually that i can't say like when exactly it began it was like i was just kind of like poking around i get into this in the prefix the the preface of the book a little bit i was kind of poking around for a few months in the middle of 2018, you know, uh, doing plenty of other stuff, but kind of poking around to see like, is there a story in this guy? Who's this Treyway guy who was always around him? What's the deal with that? And then once he and this Treyway guy got arrested, you know, was off to the races. So yeah, I would say that the arrest that, that November 2018 was just began a, a whole thing. And, you know, once the podcasts uh got revved up uh infamous the podcast ended up doing about takashi for complex and spotify like as that got revved up you know it just i got deeper and deeper as the whole thing went on right on thank you sean um you know i i just have a bit of a general question i mean because i mean you know you're you, you've orbited um daniel hernandez and his story like so well and for so long um what is your biggest sort of personal realization about Takashi after all the courtroom proceedings and the podcast and now the book? I would say, so for a long time, I was chasing after a couple sort of questions that ultimately are maybe unanswerable unless you're Takashi or Shadi, you know? Mm -hmm. Did Shadi really steal money from him? And if so, how much or how did that work? you know, thing, things like that, like what was the real, real inside baseball of their relationship, right? I was chasing after that for a long time and got close, I think, and I, I have my theories, but I would say that, you know, once I gave up on, on getting like a definitive answer on that, on kind of the biggest things, what I was left with was, this is really a story of two guys. This is a story of Takashi and it's a story of Kefano Jordan of Shadi. And that the key dynamic is that they each wanted what the other had. Mm. Uh, I get into this toward the end of the book a little bit. Um, Takashi wanted to be a real gangster. He wanted to be, you know, the big homie, the real tough guy. 
And Shadi wanted fame and he wanted kind of a lack of consequences that fame appeared to bring. And he wanted the celebrity friends and all of that stuff. And I think if you don't have those two guys and that interaction and them kind of wanting to be each other, you don't have this story. Uh, one of the last interviews, maybe the last we did for the podcast was Takashi's original manager and the guy who actually got him into nine trade, this guy's Seiko Billy and Seiko, I believe it was said when talking of Takashi and Shadi, he said every decision they made together was terrible. <laughs> and I think that, that really gets to the to the heart of of the story. That, that was a pitched and discarded title for the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm curious, Sean, that as a non-street dude, I hope you don't mind me saying that. I'm I'm I guessing think I, I've, you you can you can successfully take that all right. Yeah. Pretty safe <laughs> to say. Um, it, you know, we're non-street dudes or fascinated by hip hop, and hip hop is often intertwined by the streets. So I'm curious from that perspective. How do, how do you approach writing about the streets and the codes of the streets? At one point, you called them arcane codes of conduct, which like really resonated with me. Like, I, How much do you feel like you're explaining to a lay audience what the dynamics are like? And then there's kind of the like, I don't know, salacious. It's it's we're all intrigued by criminality and, uh, you know, the 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 code of the streets. I'll stop and let you answer. But you get what I'm saying? I do. I do. I mean, look. You know, I, you're right that there is definitely an interest. Like, look at, you know, true crime podcasts. Yep. I've made a yep. couple by now, right? That are, yep. you know, sort of, or at least some that are in the intersection of true crime and, and hip hop. Um, I would say that I don't try to, I try to just gather up information as best I can and sort of synthesize it and spit it back. I don't think that, you know, take take snitching, for example. I don't think that my opinion on snitching is worth anything, like on, mm. on the morality of it, right? Is it good? Is it bad? What counts? What even counts as snitching? Like, sort of who cares what I think about it personally? So I will look at people who are in positions to know, you know, what is generally considered snitching or what is the range of behavior that's generally considered snitching. And then I will try to explain it. You know, I'll, I'll go to people I trust who are in positions to know or, you know, and then look at, say, what Takashi himself has talked about as snitching at different points, what counts as, as it or doesn't, and try to bring all of that together in a way that makes sense, rather than get into, like, what Sean Sotaro thinks snitching is, because honestly, right. who cares? <laughs> <laughs> that that That's fair. It's uh, great to... Uh... Know how you show up in a story. Um, can you, for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with Takashi's story, like, w how would you summarize it for your parents? Like, wow. do you, like, do you, <laughs> when you meet people on the street, because if you know about the story, then you know, and we've kind of been in the weeds a little bit, but let's just pull back a bit. How do you explain to somebody who Takashi is and why his story is, is important? Sure. So, I mean, I had, you know, a year and a half of just everyone I ran into, I would just talk about, you know, overall details, you know, the details of the story, whatever minutia of it, I was knee deep in any given time or the robbery that was the most outrageous mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. But I would say overall, it's, it's a story about a guy who 
needed attention. And, you know, you can, you can get into reasons for that. I, I don't try to psychoanalyze them mm. in the book, although I think there are sort of clues there, maybe if you, if you want to look for them, but story about a guy who needed attention and knew how to push people's buttons and just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And it worked and worked and worked until it didn't. Mm. Mm. That's, that's a, that's a, a great way to, to kind of summarize it. And so, um, and obviously it becomes a, an issue because there's actually crimes that took place and, and, and things like that. Like it, it gets to this level. I, I want to ask you a question though, in, in your time being immersed in this story, you're also a hip hop person uh, for somebody who tries not to listen to anything by Takashi and has done successfully for about the past 18 months. Congratulations. Yeah. Is, is there, <laughs> but is there any merit there? Is there any, like, is there something about him as an artist? I understand why he's a story as a person, but is there anything in your time with it? Is there anything about him as an artist that maybe folks are missing on? Like, is there like a, something that, that a lot of a head such as myself is, is not catching right now. Sure. I would say he had a, a sort of sweet spot in his career that not coincidentally happened right when he blew up in that there were a few things that worked together and to me were pretty compelling, you know, a, his kind of voice and screamy delivery, which, you know, uh, I think it was Swiss Beats maybe compared to Onyx. Like, mm-hmm, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's very much in that vein. So you had that kind of delivery. Um, beats that, you know, I like that were done by some pretty good people. And the stuff that he was rhyming about, I couldn't have realized it at the time. Uh, it became clear in, in retrospect was what was actually happening. Mm. You know, he wrote a song about how People don't think that he's really a gangster, um, you know, but he really is. And other people just rap about it, which sounds like generic, you know, rap stuff until you realize he actually was directing the song at other particular blood sets in New York City who didn't believe that he was really a member of Nine Trey. And so, like, I think all of that coincided to make like a handful of really good songs, most of which are captured on that first uh the first full length there um and you know he had his friend drew writing a lot of the lyrics for him and he was really for a brief time determined to like do something commercial and it kind of worked uh i think once he became a star all of the music he's released his last two albums to me have been just completely trend chasing like completely generic and you know, it's like he sort of forgot what made him good and just said, OK, well, I'm a rap star now, so I have to do this kind of song and this kind of song and have this artist and this artist and this artist. But, yeah, there was a there was a, a brief sweet spot uh, coinciding with his initial rise to fame where to me the music was, you know, at least some of it was compelling. Perfect. Thank you, Sean. Um, you know, before we get too far into the life and times of Daniel Hernandez, I and especially for listeners who didn't catch you on our first um, when you were on the program before, you know, I want to give you a bit of a platform to, you know, talk about your background, um, both as a musician, as well as um, the cypher, which we're all big fans of, Mm. and sort of how that, you know, um, precedes all your recent work. Um, Yeah, just, just, just a couple minutes to kind of like, 
talk a bit about, about your background for everybody. Sure. So, you know, before getting into music journalism in a big way, uh, I was a musician, you know, went to Berkeley, played guitar and bass in a ton of different acts over the years, um, you know, toured a lot, did studio stuff, uh, both in Boston and New York. Um, you know, the only notable thing hip hop wise for that was like, I spent about a year playing with the Lords of Brooklyn, if you remember those guys. Um, and so with them got to do things like open up for Cypress Hill and play on the Warp Tour and stuff like that, which was just, you know, an incredible experience. Shouts to, you know, Mike and Adam for that. Um, so yeah, had that whole other life, mostly in kind of rock and, you know, adjacent stuff, but was always a rap fan, uh, always really, really loved it. And transitioned into, you know, music journalism first at the site then called Rap Genius mm. and, you know, eventually freelancing and, and now at Complex. But, you know, as Dave mentioned, starting at Rap Genius and then afterwards, once I left there, I had this podcast uh, called The Cypher. And that was something where I just, you know, it was just basically me and our producer, Josh, and I talked to who I wanted to talk to and asked them what I wanted to ask them. And, you know, really tried to go in depth and really thought of this as like a hip hop archive. Mm. And it was artists, but it was also executives. It was also uh, journalists. It was also dancers and visual artists and anyone sort of in the culture uh, who I thought, you know, I wanted to talk to. And that was just such an amazing experience. It's about 250 episodes and, you know, just a, a whole range of folks. Um, you know, I can't even begin to, to, to get into to it, but it was, you know, just such an incredible experience. And I feel like the shows had a little bit of an afterlife in that, you know, I'm seeing so many shows now where the, the hosts of it, the hosts, you know, like you guys have, you know, were great enough to listen and pay attention to what I was doing. And I'm not saying like what the cipher is, has anything to do with any shows that are out now, but I feel like, you know, I, I it's been good to see fans of the show do their own successful shows. And, you know, if I had any inspiration to any of that, uh, that's, you know, that's been amazing to see. So the cipher, the cipher all the episodes are still there. They'll be free, you know, for forever. So definitely, uh, you know, check them out. Yeah. It's, it's such Thanks, a great man. archive. I've, I've told you this privately before I'll say it publicly. I have to ration my episodes because each one sends me in these deep rabbit holes where I'm like checking out books at the library and looking up old, like way back machine websites. And I just like, I have to know everything when I get involved with it, but it, it's such an incredible show. Um, I wanted to ask you something, um, again, kind of textual about Dummy Boy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this part where you're you're talking about Shoddy's time as a fugitive, which mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if he was up until the arrest for all of this stuff or not. And I don't really care about that. What I actually care about is you italicize at one point. You're like, he, he didn't do things uh, fugitives normally do. He didn't even stop Italics living in New Jersey where he's a wanted fugitive. And I felt like you were in a subtle 
typographical way ex- expressing a little bit of exasperation at like the just the insanity and this is this is early in the book we haven't really gotten into any major crimes yet but just of the like their codes and their behavior is so different from a normal person's i felt like you were kind of like get a load of this guy can you believe this shit like can, am i am i on the right track does that you, you you are i mean that was definitely yeah i mean that was italicized to kind of be like yeah, to show sort of how different that action was from how other people might treat being a fugitive, right? And to show how, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, they may, for example, move a little bit away from the area where they're wanted, which Shadi didn't, right? He stayed, he basically stayed right there. Um, yeah, I mean, look, so much of what makes this story compelling is that these guys did absolutely outrageous things all the time with seemingly no fear of being caught even when they were pretty, even when they were aware there was a federal investigation against them. Mm-hmm. You know, Shadi says at one point, and it was caught on tape by an informant, he says, you know, there's a federal investigation against us. And it let's didn't, go do some crimes. Right. It didn't stop him. <laughs> it didn't stop him from sending two guys into a housing project to shoot somebody. Right. You know, in his car. slightly more serious take on this and i I just genuinely want to know what you think is that because the being in the gang and doing the gang stuff and living the gang life doesn't stop when you're in prison is like prison not such a uh an impediment to this kind of behavior as we as a society might think it is sure i mean look i don't know what's in people's heads right but i do know that the way Nine Trey was structured, and I get into this actually in, in some detail in the book, the people in prison, that is that is to say uh, state prison, federal prison is kind of a different issue because you can be anywhere in the country. But the people in state prison are actually more powerful in the gang hierarchy than the people on the outside. They're the real mm. shot callers, the real decision makers. So, I mean, you can kind of, you know, take what you want from that, I think, as far as what you're asking. Man, this is... Uh... This is some real, like you say, true crime shit. Uh, yeah. I, I'm really marveling at kind of the, um, I think you're on the forefront of the hip hop true crime industrial complex. Uh, <laughs> these things in the past were relegated to like smack DVDs and like these different kind of ways of chronicling how hip hop and street culture interact. Sure. Well, uh, if, I can, if I can interrupt for one second, Damone, I think. This is one of the things that's so fascinating to me about the Takashi case and, and the fact that he was an informant and that there were, you know, a couple other informants in the case as well is so much of the relationship between rap and gangs is at this level where, you know, if you look at someone like Jim Jones, Jim Jones is a master of implying things, right? Of saying things obliquely and with just enough plausible deniability that if you ask him outright, he can be like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, for example, uh, Jim was talking about a nine tray member, uh, Jamel Jones, Mel Murda, who's his who's good friend, and they share a last name. And so Jim says to me, he says, you know, we're related. And then he pauses and he says, we're blood related. Mm. And, mm. you know, it's like a, it's a joke a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everyone knows. Um, and so that is the way that you know, rap has the connection between rap and gangs has often operated. It's rumored people, you know, 
mention stuff in lyrics obliquely or some sometimes overtly, but like, you know, you never know how much of it's real and how much is it for show. Like, you know, Lil Wayne didn't go 30 years not being a blood. And then, you know, all yeah. of a sudden one day, you know, I'm blooded Sue Wu, right? Like, you right. know, you never, never quite know how much of that is real and how much of it's an act. Right. With Takashi, it all kind of spilled out, you know, how, when he started paying the gang, how much money, what he got in return, you know, all of this stuff was actually like, he has the guys in the videos and then he becomes a member and, you know, you get sort of the whole thing. And I'm, I'm not saying every or even any other situation in hip hop is like that, but I think that the, certainly the dynamics can't be unique. And so it was, it was interesting to see it just totally outright, including the like closed door hidden meetings on which gang member would have control of his career. That's crazy. That that's crazy. And and I guess I guess where I was going is like um a lot of that has not been covered with any like real journalistic um nuance or thoughtfulness. It's either like a crime report on rappers or things that um I don't know what you want to say, non-journalist type folks produce more salacious things. So it's been interesting to see that you, you're actually covering it as not just a reporter, but somebody with a hip hop background. Let me let me ask this. Do you feel like um, is there are there do you have thoughts about other Takashi type situations that may be present in hip hop? Are you like on the lookout for the next the next great spilling of 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 gang life into hip hop? Is that something that's on your radar? I mean, this took up years of my life, uh, so I'm not necessarily anxious <laughs> to jump right back into it again uh, with the pop smoke story, which we'll, you know, I assume we'll get into in a minute. That also had a pretty hefty, you know, subsection of like gang stuff, you know, that was very complicated and confusing and then try to make that understandable. Um, so, you know, I, I will, I may see stuff, but I'm not really trying. Uh, one thing I have been paying attention to is, you know, now I'm seeing a lot of, rappers caught up in, you know, gang busts, racketeering busts, uh, both in Brooklyn and elsewhere, uh, and particularly a lot of gun busts. Uh, I have a kind of, you know, thesis I'm working off of this, which I got, you know, from a, a paper from an author, I'll have to email you guys later, but um, that basically gun laws are sort of the new drug laws. Mm. Uh, in terms of how they're being used, uh, particularly on a federal level, uh, you know, happy to talk about that all day, but I'll spare you. But, you know, that's, I think, something I'm really turning my eye toward now is how, in particular, gun laws are being used and often against rappers. Sean did email us later to note that the article was by Bonita R. Gardner and titled Separate and Unequal Federal Tough on Gun Program Targets Minority Communities for Selective Enforcement. Mm, wow. You know, um, Sean, I just had a question a little bit about the, the process itself and sort of any um, internal um, considerations that you had to make when it came to humanizing Daniel Hernandez. Like, mm. certainly it's uh, certainly there's some sympathetic parts, uh, you know, of, of his story, um, particularly his his early life. Mm. But yeah, I mean, also, this is a person who did awful actions and committed awful things. And so I just, you know, sort of from a, a, a writing process point of view, were, what sort of considerations did you have to make in terms of like humanizing him and not and sort of keeping the story, you know, in perspective? 
That's a that's a very good question, Dave. Like I no one wants to read a book about a guy who is a hundred percent awful and a monster, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no buy-in there. Uh I also didn't want you to solely feel bad for this poor guy who was used by a street gang because you know he wanted attention that he didn't get at home because that's certainly not the full story either right mm-hmm. and to to your point even before we get into you know in terms of the bad stuff that he did uh i would say being cooperating witness number two is kind of relatively far down the list uh so i didn't want to negate the more serious things that he did mm-hmm. um you know, some of which to my mind are unforgivable, you know, so I didn't want to shy away from those either. So it was, it was tough. And I think, you know, if you just kind of sit down and, and lay it all out, um, I think I was fortunate and the story did a lot of work for me in that you get a lot of this humanizing stuff at the beginning with his early life, the murder of his stepfather, and then you get this sort of almost full circle moment at the end when his birth father pops up in a sort of horrific and unexpected and exploitative way at his sentencing. And so I think those points at the beginning and end kind of mm. helped, you know, did a lot of the work. Yeah. Thank you, man. That's, mm-hmm. that's an insane part of the book and part of the story and just like uh I feel like we could do another two hours around the mechanics of that. And uh, like, why, why then of all times? And I guess we know why. I mean, look, this, this didn't, this didn't, this didn't work its way into the book because, you know, whatever there's, there's a lot in there, but you know, obviously I was there when his father showed up at the sentencing. Uh, He was in, he appeared to be in pretty rough shape. He actually like walked literally right by me on his way to the seat, you know, and you know, he's saying, Danny is my son, Danny is my son. And afterwards, you know, I I mentioned this in the book, I believe he was giving out his phone number like candy. But what I don't say is that I actually called him afterwards for an interview and he wanted money. Okay. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't shut the world down money, but it was, you know, obviously I wasn't going to do that no matter how much for, you know, ethical reasons. But I think the fact that he wanted, you know, that that was... uh, I think that was no small motivating factor. Let me just so put some it like of this that. is genetic. You're saying <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a really interesting point in the story where you crystallize something I've noticed in culture, but hadn't known how to say yet. And it's that I'm just going to use the very broad term criminals here, but more it's just like people or people in social media in general, it's like you have to record what you do. Otherwise, it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And that notion ends up playing a pretty big role in the complex subject Pop Smoke podcast that you also wrote and produced and which is an excellent distillation of the Pop Smoke story. So can you talk a little bit about the the, the kind of the, the similarities here to Brooklyn rap acts who made their way to fame quickly and had a knack for um, chronicling their experiences and using social media to kind of level up. Like, do, do you, does that resonate with you and how you see it as well? Sure. I mean, pop wasn't 
very heavy on social media that, but he did have some viral moments, which you're, you're alluding to Nate, uh, particularly in the beginning of his career. Um, yeah. I mean, look, there are similarities. They're both from Brooklyn. Um, their careers, you know, or their bursts to fame were about the same length of time, about a year. Um, there are some minor uh, overlaps in terms of gang stuff in that, you know, Takashi's actually, you know, Takashi's DJ was from the same area of Brooklyn as Pop. Uh, that's Punch, who we actually have hosting, you know, our complex subject show uh, about Pop Smoke. You know, he's in some ways the, the fulcrum point between them. Uh, you know, one of Takashi's songs actually shouts out Woo, which was kind of Pop Smoke's crew. You know, I didn't realize says, it went that deep. Yeah. When he says, he says, when I woo woo back on uh, Stupid, I think the song with Bobby Shmurda. Um, so, you know, there's some connections, some overlap and definitely, you know, Pop's initial, uh, you know, the only reason people heard of him, at least when he was a kid, was because he was on a viral video that went to World Star. And as he began his rap career, he rec- where he was smacked up, unfortunately. And but as he became a rapper, he recorded kind of a sequel to it where he in turn, you know, got back at one of the guys from that video six, seven years later, whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, he definitely used social media in that way. Once he rose to fame, he wasn't really on it a ton. He was a lot more private. Uh, unfortunately, one of the times he was on it um, had really devastating consequences. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's heavy, and I think the the podcast does a great job of talking to the people who knew him best. Punch is great. Not only is his voice great, he brings this kind of like world weariness to it. Like someone who's who's seen a lot and been been at the forefront of a lot. It's just a really good series. Thank and, uh, you. Even though we don't do a produced podcast, I love a produced podcast. So I'm always curious about musical cues, and I won't nerd out on you too hard. But um, just wanted to kind of bring us to kind of like a valedictory statement like you've you've been involved in this for a long time and I feel like I want to ask you about like being in the courtroom how much that informed um your your writing and your your ability to describe these things so well and to give people context and then there's a little part in the end of the book it's uh page 256 I believe where you become part of the narrative mm-hmm. and they had a, like a sidebar about one of your articles. And can you talk a little, like a little bit about that stuff? Like how much time you spent at the court and like when you became part of it, did it like shake you a little or how did it? Sure. Feel? Sure. So um, being part of the story, as, as Nate mentions, you know, what happened in the courtroom is there was kind of a brief uh, sort of subliminal reference to an article that I wrote that the judge actually said in the, you know, in the middle of the trial. Uh, And then I confirmed later with one of the lawyers that, yes, they were really talking about my article. I basically got one of the defendants who was on trial to comment in an article during the trial, which is, you know, something that usually doesn't happen and for good reason. Um, But, you know, they wanted to get the statement out there. Uh, So that was that was pretty weird. But at the same time, you got to think like, I'd been basically living at that courtroom for a couple of weeks by that point. That was my office, right? You see the same people. And I'd also gone to like all of the hearings. So I knew everyone at the courtroom, knew all the media, you know? So it was just kind of like, 
in some ways it was exceptional, but in some ways it was just like, oh yeah, they recognize me. I'm that guy who's always there. You know, I, I, you know, I knew that the the judges like deputy knew who I was because I would chat with him and I would knew that the, you know, the prosecutors knew who I was and all the defense lawyers because I'd chat with them, you know, like it, it was just kind of like, oh, I guess I am a part of this community, you know, the sort of makeshift temporary weirdo community. Um, but yeah, and on the other hand, it was also very strange to be mentioned, you know, to have something I wrote kind of come up in, in the middle of this thing. Um, as far as being there the whole time, I mean, that's just inextricable from what the book is. Like the, the second half of the book kind of follows a lot of the legal wranglings. And I could have gotten that just from reading the documents, I guess. But, you know, afterwards, but it was being there moment by moment, day by day, you know, being at the hearing where these weirdo things happened and Shadi slipped up and accidentally told the truth for a second that, you know, his music business and the gang were the same thing. Or, you know, a, a lawyer really fucked up and pissed the judge off, you know, like, I was there, so I know the kind of subtext or the how annoyed people were, stuff that you, you know, wouldn't come through necessarily if you just read a transcript. So I think, you mm. know, having been there as much as I was, was kind of inextricable from what the, the book became. And like, that's, you know, I, all credit to Complex for kind of letting me leave the office whenever the hell I said I needed mm. to, and just, you know, set up it at, on, uh, you know, at the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse. That's it. That's amazing. Uh, excellent work. Uh, we're, we're really glad that you could come back on and talk to us about it. Uh, Dummy Boy, Takashi 69 and the nine Trey Gangsta Bloods. When does it come out? So it'll be out this fall uh, in November. It was going to be out October 12th, but, you know, COVID messed everything up, including shipping and printing. But mm. it'll be out in November, but you can pre-order now anywhere you get books. Uh, there will also be an audio book if you're into that sort of thing, read by the voice of 48 hours, Dion Graham. Is so, that right? That's wow. right. Okay. So that's, a, that's another option. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, you can, you can pre-order it anywhere you get books so you can get it hot off the presses and uh, complex subject pop smoke you can find on Spotify. And uh, there's, you know, there's some other exciting stuff uh, coming, coming down the pike, actually, you know, one, one thing that I will say is like, I'm, at work on a second book now that I guess I can drop to you guys exclusively is about (laughs) is just kind of about rap and policing more broadly. Okay. Uh, One of the things about the Takashi case that made it anomalous was that like these guys all did it. They all admitted (laughs) they did it or were found guilty at trial. Um, You know, the, there was some stuff around the edges that I thought the prosecutors and judge did around like lyrics that maybe weren't great, but overall, you know, the judge did his best to determine like who was culpable and sentenced them accordingly. And it was, you know, in the shining jewel of the federal court system. So like, as these things go, sure, there was shitty stuff about it. And yes, you know, there's definitely like systemic racism working in everything, but like, as far as these things go, it was handled reasonably thoroughly and well, but there are tons of cases that are not all of the time. Mm-hmm. And there is, as you guys know, a long history of police, you know, 
treating rappers as if they were part of the mafia. Right. 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 And the, I want the book to get into that, both the, the history of it and then looking at some more contemporary examples, including, you know, Pop Smoke in his case uh, that, you know, his federal case where the government was, you know, using the possibility of prison time to squeeze him for information. Mm. Um, yeah. So I want to investigate some of those dynamics. So I am in the, the middle of that right now. Man. Well, we, we look forward to, uh, to you coming back and talking about your, your next book, but we want to make sure that everybody knows that uh, Dummy Boy, the Takashi 69 and the Nine Trey Gangster Bloods is coming out this fall. You should definitely cop it. Sean Sotero, thank you for coming on the program, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Always great to be here. Wow, that was our talk with Sean Sotero. Um, always such a pleasure to get him on the get him on the phone, right, Nate? Sean is the coolest. Um, the coolest. I'm like such a huge fan of his. If he had done nothing but the cipher, I would be like his biggest fan. That's such a great podcast and so influential to us. Uh, but then he's he's just such the coolest guy. I don't I don't know if we talked about this in the interview or in the in the lead up or whatever. But um, he was very cool to us very early on. He was a you know he kind of welcomed us into the hip hop podcasting world and the hip hop journalism world in a really cool way. We had our first ever big episode with him uh, when we went through Complex's list of um, the greatest producers every year we did numbers that at the time we were like oh shit and now it's kind of normal so it was like right that's nice right totally totally well you know before we before we go off too further I definitely got to congrats Sean on his book um, which we covered in that interview and there couldn't be a better author a better journalist to sort of hone in on this whole Takashi um, uh, thing that that happened because I mean uh, it's, he's going to cast a long shadow and it's really good to see like a dedicated reporter such as so, uh, such as Sean, you know what I mean? Especially someone who was in the courtroom every day and and has had like a pedigree, like you mentioned, with the cipher and stuff. It, it couldn't have been a better person to take this on. Totally. It's it's so funny. Like, I think uh, we've mentioned this to him off air. I can't remember if we did it on air. It's like we wouldn't cover Takashi. We're covering right. Sean's work on Takashi. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Like, I, exactly. I think I've literally never heard a song. Like I've heard snippets <laughs> of songs. And when he was big, he was pretty um, un, unmissable. Like you just had to be curious about what the kid with the rainbow hair was doing. Totally. Um, but I, I'm yeah, much more interested in Sean's tenaciousness and um, just the the deep reporting that he did, all the different people that he talked to, all the different ways that he embedded himself into the story and wrote a great book and did a, a hit podcast about it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It was just really, really impressive, a great model for how serious these things should be taken. So yeah, just, and just like, he, like, you know, we just were saying he's just the coolest guy. So I could just chat with him for hours, but we definitely want to help him promote his book, Dummy Boy. Yes, exactly. Which, which I read pretty much the whole thing. And it's great. It just, you know, typical Sean style, just very insightful, very informative, very straightforward. Um, Isn't flowery with the language, isn't self-indulgent. It's just 
perfect journalism, perfect recording. And um, hopefully this book takes off uh, because I think um, Sean certainly deserves it. And Takashi's story, I mean, it, it, it's a gripping one. It's a gripping one. So it, it is. Uh, I mean, the, really the, the circumstances around that trial and his rise, uh, I think, portray some of the dark underbelly about how hip hop has always been entwined in the streets and you don't right. you don't often get it laid out in such detail um but it I, I i just i just come from a different culture i come from like kind of like a suburban mentality like did did the rappers that we grew up admiring all need to like front like they were gang members to get on like can't you just be good this is right, something i'll never right. kind of get over right Right. Well, I mean, when we were young, there was that whole notion of uh, studio gangsters, right? People just fronting, you know? And so, but I think, you know, when we're like 12 or 13, it's kind of hard to, to, to make those uh, lines distinguished. We had, yeah. I had no idea, you know, yeah. if, if Big L was really a gangster or not, you know, right. like who knew? Right. I mean, and, and when I was listening to it at that point, I didn't even really care, but as an adult and as, you know, somebody who follows the culture like we do um, again. I mean, not to be redundant, but no, no better journalist to cover this than Sean Sotero. Totally. He was great. And we appreciate his time. And we've actually been sitting on that one for a minute. So it's just nice to get it out into the world. We just want to make sure we do our part to encourage everyone to buy and uh, download or hold in your hands. Dummy boy. Um, really, really well done book. Um, just nice of Sean to send copies ahead of time and nice of Sean to stop by and chat with us. I, I would love to talk to Sean once a year, once every, 100. you know, just whenever he's doing, we're happy right. to talk about it. And um, he's awesome. So that was great. Um, Want to remind everybody to follow us on Twitter. That's where a lot of the conversation is taking place these days. And we try to, stay in that without uh, muddying our shoes so to speak too much in pointless conversations but we are always talking about hip-hop on there we've got an instagram we're gonna be reviving here now that the year the calendar has turned over we're gonna be posting more um love to encourage everyone to listen to our last episode um episode 200 with too short you may have heard of him up and coming rapper from oakland california um has has about 16 albums <laughs> and is an international legend uh, so we encourage you to go check that out if it was the holidays and you missed it and you didn't want to listen to uh the guy whose favorite word is bitch when you were around your parents we get it but that's over now you're back home go listen to uh to our two short episode and um yeah join the patreon um the patreon is where we do exclusive segments we have record reviews, uh, my fake radio show. We are sending people Dave's old promos. Um, Damone is interacting with people. We're, uh, we're just, it's just an extension of the show and it's a way to show that you care. And we appreciate everyone that has given. We, uh, it's a $5 uh, no tiered system. Everybody gets everything. If you want to send more, that's really appreciated. And uh, it's just been great to interact with folks over there. And we have a lot more coming your way. So this has been episode 201 of Dad Bod Rap Pod for Damone Carter, who is on assignment. David Ma, I'm Nate LeBlanc, Dad Bod Rap Pod.